Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Ephesians chapter 5 is our text this morning. Lord willing, we're going to look at verses 1 through 5 under the title, Walking in Love. Ephesians chapter 5. In this chapter, Paul returns to his instructions to believers concerning our walk. You recall that our walk is our ordered, habitual way of life. The way we talk, the way we act, the way we think over a long period of time. Well, next Sunday evening, Lord willing, we plan to ordain two of our young men here into the gospel ministry. And leading up to that ordination service and council, we have been meeting with these young men for well over a year, training them in doctrine and preparing them for the ordination council. And if you don't know, an ordination council in a Baptist church is when all the ordained men in, in the church get together and they quiz the uh, candidates. Literally put them in a chair in front of the room and ask any question. There are two categories of questions. The first category is their doctrine. What do you believe? We want to make sure that their doctrinal beliefs line up with what we teach and believe here in this church and as Baptist. Of course, that doctrinal statement is based upon the scripture, of course. And then we want to ask about their personal life. We want to hear their testimony of faith in Christ. We want to hear about their calling into the ministry. More importantly, we want to hear about what the Lord is doing in their life right now. And really, those are the two hemispheres of life. And we take that ordination counsel from something that the Apostle Paul wrote to young pastor Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, he said, Timothy, watch your life and your doctrine. Those are the two hemispheres of lives, not only for ministers, but for all Christians, our life and our doctrine. And so the first three chapters of Ephesians has to do with the first hemisphere, our doctrine. Here's what we are to believe. Here's who we are as Christians. The second half of Ephesians, of which chapter five belongs, is the hemisphere that deals with our actions, how we behave in a practical manner. And so this morning we're going to look at how we behave. Now, so far in chapter 4, first of all, he says we're to walk in unity. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And as we put the needs of others first in the context of the church, we will have that unity. We'll walk together in harmony. Then we saw a couple of weeks ago in verse 17 here in chapter 4, we're also to have an enlightened walk. Paul says that before we were saved, we were in darkness. In fact, he says in chapter 5, we were darkness. We were part of the problem. And then the Lord Jesus opened our eyes. Remember what the man that Jesus healed said in his testimony, I once was blind, but now I see. Well, that is true of every Christian. We were cold and calloused and darkened in our understanding, the scripture says, insensitive to spiritual things. And now we walk in light. Now here in chapter five, he says, we're also to walk in love. That is love is to be the overarching motivator for the rest of our life. Well, let's read the first five verses here in chapter five. Paul writes, therefore, be imitators of God 
as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. There must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting but rather the giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. You will remember that in chapter 4, Paul instructs the Ephesians to put their old way of life behind them. We said, put it in your rearview mirror and instead put on the new self. That is, lay aside, Paul says, the dirty garments of sin, having been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, now let us put on the robes of righteousness and a new way of life. Well, thankfully, it's not left to our own imagination as to what this new life would look like. In fact, he gives us the perfect example to follow. That's the first point on your outline, a perfect example taken from the very first sentence. He says, therefore, that is in light of the fact of who you are, be imitators of God as beloved children. Paul issues an imperative, a command to all Christians. He says, be imitators of God. Now the Greek word there, translated imitator, actually looks very much like the English word mimic. He's saying mimic God, do what he does in other words. Now there's really only two reasons that you would ever mimic someone. The first is to make fun of them. Children do that all the time, right? The quickest way to start a fight in the Sanders house is for one child to begin to mimic the other. Everything they say, they repeat it. If they go to this room, they follow them. And we do that to irritate one another. But the second reason we mimic others is the one Paul refers to here, that is out of reverence. We see them as a person whose life, whose character is worthy of imitation. And so we mimic them. Well, Paul says to mimic God. Now that's a quite, uh, quite a tall order, isn't it? That's a simple commandment. Everybody be like God. <laughs> well, what does he mean by that? Well, in the basis sense, it means to think and have the character of God. Now all of us in life probably have people we look up to who we try to emulate. You probably as a, a young person in high school looked up to some of the seniors and um, maybe at work there's uh, someone who may be your supervisor who you'd like to be like one day. Pastors are no different. Every pastor I know is a conglomeration of pastors they admire. And uh, you can tell in about 10 minutes into a sermon who someone listens to or who they admire in the ministry. When I was a boy back in the 1970s, the person that a lot of preachers in the South tried to imitate was uh, Dr. Criswell right over here at First Baptist Church of Dallas. And he had an incredible voice and people tried to tell stories and, and laugh like him. Uh, but even the way he dressed in the summertime, Dr. Criswell was known for dressing in white suits and white patent leather shoes. And I can't tell you how many visiting preachers came to our church and every one of them had a white suit and white patent leather shoes, just like Dr. Criswell. Dr. Criswell was often asked about that and he said, well, it's that way in every generation. He said, in my generation, it was Dr. Truett who was his predecessor there at First Baptist. And he used to tell the story that Dr. Truett had a, a very unique style of preaching in which he would start out very quietly and calmly 
and slowly. And throughout the sermon, his voice would build into a crescendo finish at the end. And by the end of it, everybody was on the edge of their seats. And he said, uh, the word got out about that. And so these young preachers would take the train or the carriage and they'd make their way to Dallas to hear Dr. Truett preach. And they all went home and tried to mimic that in their particular context. And you know, that doesn't always work out real well, right? Because those people we mimic often are particularly gifted. And so this young preacher came from the South. He came by train, he heard Dr. Truett preach and he took copious notes and he was gonna go back and preach that way to his congregation. Of course, they didn't have the beautiful architecture of First Baptist Dallas and they certainly didn't have any microphones or amplification of any kind. And, and so he starts out very low and slow and someone from the back stood up and said, we can't hear you preacher. And a dear saint on the front stood up and said, well, thank the Lord and sit down. <laughs> Who do you mimic? Paul says, be imitators of God as beloved children. One of the reasons we feel so strongly here about adoption and fostering as a ministry is because we know that children tend to imitate what they see in adults. And we want children to be in homes where the adults love the Lord, who are walking closely with the Lord. And, and so um, we know that beloved children tend to be like their parents. So he says, act like your father who is in heaven. It's just the opposite of what Jesus told the Pharisees. He says, you are of your father who? The devil, you're acting like the devil. He says, Christians, you're to act like your father, God. What does he mean by that? Well, I know some Christians that hope it means that God wants us to give us omnipotence. <laughs> We want all the power that he has and we want omniscience so that we can be in everybody's business. Or we want omnipresence so that we can be everywhere at once and not miss a thing. That's not at all what he's saying here. He's talking about the character of God. He's saying the same thing in a different way that we find in both testaments of the Bible. Be ye holy, even as I am holy, saith the Lord. Our way of living, our way of thinking, our way of talking should reflect that we know a holy God. Now, holy living is exactly opposite of what the pagan lifestyle of the Ephesian Christians had come out of. Remember that we saw last week the kind of lifestyle they emerged from, one that was noted for dishonesty. That's why Paul says in the very first thing in your Christian relationships, speak the truth to one another. Stop lying to one another. It was society known for sinful anger. That's why Paul had to say, be angry and sin not. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. It was society known for dishonesty and crime and stealing. And he says, if you used to steal, steal no longer. Stop it. Go to work. Be busy with your hands. Their society was known by filthy speech. And so Paul, on two occasions here in this book, has to tell them to not be known for rotten talk putrid speech. In fact, they were known for using their tongue to slander and malign and harm other people. And he says, don't do that any longer. Instead, he says, imitate the holiness you see and observe in God in the same way that beloved children imitate what they see in their parents. Now, the question then is, where do we discover what God is like? Now, Paul says in Romans, there is a sense where we can look to nature. We call this a natural revelation. We can look at the Grand Canyon and know that God is artistic. We can look at a newborn baby 
and know he's a genius when it comes to creativity. We can listen to music and, and know that uh, God loves the beautiful. But we can't know how to be saved simply by viewing nature. That's why we need the Bible. In the Bible, we find everything that God wants us and requires of us to know of him. That's why we have a, have a high view of scripture here and, and we, we teach it in every area of life here. Because in the Bible, God has chosen to reveal his nature and his character so that we can become like him. And we call this process of growing more and more into the likeness and the image of God sanctification, right? The process which we grow into the image of Christ. Now, what motivates and qualifies that new way of life, Paul says here, is love. He says we are to walk in love. Now, you young men, remember when you used to walk in love, right? When you're in love, you walked about three feet off the ground and uh, everything was roses. That's not what he's talking about here. He's saying what should motivate your unique and different way of speaking, talking, acting, and thinking is love for God, which enables you then to love other people. You've been told, and it's right, there are two fundamental relationships of every human being. There is the vertical between you and God, and then there's the horizontal between you and all other people. But until the vertical is made right, the horizontal will never be right, right? Because we're all sinners. And the only way that the vertical is going to be made right is if God intervenes in our lives and regenerates our soul. He opens our blind eyes and causes us to walk in light, which motivates us to walk in unity. But over it all, we should be motivated by love. Love for God, for what he's done for us, that is his forgiveness, which allows us to show love for other people, which what is the highest characteristic of love is that it forgives Love does not keep a record of wrongs done, Paul says, right? So then the everyday pattern of life as a Christian is to imitate, hear this, the holiness of God motivated by love for him and other people who are made in his image. We are never left the option in the scripture as Christians of not loving and forgiving other people. In fact, Jesus says, if you do not forgive your brother, your heavenly Father in heaven will not forgive you. Now, I know this is a radical way of living. It was a radical way of living in first century Ephesus. It's a, ra it's a radical way of living today. That is putting others first, being faithful in your marriage till death do you part, being honest in business. And someone who had a lifestyle before of doing none of those things and suddenly they're different can only be explained through the miracle work of regeneration. Apparently here's what was happening in the city of Ephesus, which was known for debauchery. The very name Ephesus was synonymous with sin. And so here you have people that had businesses which they swindled and cheated people, suddenly having integrity. Here you have men who formerly used to consort with prostitutes at the temple of Diana. Suddenly they're being faithful and showing concern for their wife. 
Here you have people who always were stepping on necks on their way to the top, who were giving their money away. And can you imagine their friends and acquaintances seeing this and what in the world is going on with you? They didn't know any way to explain it. That's why Peter says that we are to be ready to give an answer to anyone ask us of the hope that is within us. That's called apologetics, right? We need to be able to tell people what we believe and why we believe it, and more importantly, why we live like we do. Because when, when you hold a Christian who's born again, who's different and new in the way that they think, act, and speak, it's gonna raise questions. Jesus, of course, is the greatest example of this kind of loving and this kind of living. Look what he says. Just as Christ, he's calling for them to be imitators of God. Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. That's point two, a precious offering if you want to know what a life like the one I've been describing looks like, looks like, it is a life marked by sacrificial giving. Pouring oneself out for the good of another. In, in short, read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and, God, Luke and John. It will show up in every relationship of your life. It will show up in your marriage. Paul is going to say here in this same fifth chapter of Ephesians later on, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Jesus says, no greater love has this than a man would lay down his life for his friends. That's the kind of love husbands are to have for their wives. But it's not just in marriage, it's also in the church. Each one of us is to be willing to put the needs of the other before himself or herself. We've been studying in Romans for a year or more on Wednesday night here in chapters 14 and 15, go home and read it, are all about putting the other person first in the context of the local church. That is not natural to a man who's not born again. It's true for parents. Parents who are willing to model sacrificial love for one another, but also for their children. You say, oh, well, I can do that one. I sacrifice for my kids. I, I work hard so that they can go to a nice school and wear nice clothes and drive nice cars. That's not what I'm talking about. You know some of the, the greatest sacrifice you can give your child is discipline. Here's what I mean. You, you walk in the door, men, and you're worn out from a week of work and your child is misbehaving, your wife is in tears and that child needs to be disciplined but you would rather have comfort and ease for one evening than discipline your child. And we justify it by saying, oh, I just love him so much. I can't see, stand to see him hurting. No, you love yourself. And I love myself when I do that. I love my own comfort more than I love my child because I know what that child needs more than anything else is discipline. Scripture says to bring them up in the nurture and the discipline of the Lord. And sometimes that's the hardest thing to do, is love them enough to serve them through discipline. But it's also true for the work environment. We're going to see this in a couple of weeks. Men and women who, who own their businesses and have employees, or maybe just those of you that supervise other people. You can and should show this kind of love to your employees. You say, wait a second, aren't the employees there 
to make money for me? Aren't the employees there to make my life easier? Aren't the employees there to do my bidding? No, not if you're a Christian. If you have employees, the Lord has given them to you as a stewardship. And you owe them this kind of example, this kind of love. Doesn't mean you can't hold them accountable. Doesn't mean you don't have high standards for them. It means you model before them putting the needs of others first. Now let me ask you a question. In those four examples I've given, marriage, church, child-parent relationships, and in the workplace, how many of you would love to work for a boss who puts your needs ahead of his own? Everybody, right? How many of you would like to be in a marriage where your spouse always thought of you first? How many of you would like to be in a church where every member is putting the needs of every other member first? Of course we would. This is what he calls us to do. And he says, as we do that, the Lord is pleased with it. I know that because he says, follow the example of Christ who gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Now, Jesus, of course, was literally an atoning sacrifice. He died on the cross. But he's speaking here of those aromatic sacrifices they used to make in, in the, the temple. Now, we often give God human traits, right? We talk about God's eyes and ears. And he allows us to do that in the scripture because he's kind and generous to us because he knows we don't have the vocabulary of heaven yet. And so there are verses in the Bible that say things like, God's arm is not weak. His eye is not dull. That's not to say God has a human body. It's to say that's the way we can describe his character. And here's another example of that. When he talks about Jesus being a sweet aroma to God in his sacrifice, he's not talking about through his nose. He's saying it satisfied him. He was pleased with it. We know that's true because Isaiah says it pleased the father as the son was bruised. You walk into your home and there's your favorite meal cooking on top of the stove and you smell it. It satisfies you, brings you joy, satisfaction. He says this is what brings God satisfaction when we live lives like Christ, when we serve others and Put them first. And so if you want to know what a, a life like that looks like, look to Jesus. Look to the upper room where the God of heaven, the creator of the universe, got down on his hands and knees and washed the dirty feet of men. Look to the crowds who came to him sick and hungry and thirsty and he was moved with compassion. Look to the cross. No greater love you'll find on earth than at the cross. Well, there's a precious offering, but thirdly, there, there's a proper lifestyle. That is, in response to that, we're to live a different way. And so he uses a very clear transitional word, a conjunction, but. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you. That is, shouldn't even be a hint of any of these things in the life of a Christian, as is proper among saints, and there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. Now, Paul comes right back from his doctrinal instruction, circles right back around to his instruction on practical Christian living. He gets so pointed and so personal as to talk about how we talk. First of all, he talks about how we behave, immorality, impurity, and greed. Don't let it even be rumored among you. If we are imitating Christ, it won't be 
because it was never known among his men. If our actions are motivated by Christ-like love, we should not be associated even with impurity of any sort. Now he's speaking there primarily, I think, of sexual um, practices, which were true of Ephesus, but also for greed and the love of money. But I think in a sense he's just talking about anything that would be put in the category of general lewdness. And I'm not going to embarrass you by giving you ten examples of lewdness. You know it when you see it. And when you hear it, and as a Christian, you're not to be known for it or by it. And that even includes how we talk. He says, no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting should come out of our mouth. You know, I've lived a life uh, for a good portion of my life pretty isolated from this kind of thing. I grew up in a pastor's home, and um, most of my activities until I graduated high school were at the church. So I was not exposed to a lot of lewdness until I went off to college. And I got a job on a, a group we simply called The Crew. It was kind of a catch-all thing. We had some old trucks and whoever needed a piano moved or some aluminum chairs unfolded or a concert stage set up. We just kind of went here and there and did that. And I will tell you, the young men that I work with were as depraved as any I have ever met. If it was liquid, they would drink it. If it, were a, if it wore a dress, they would chase it. If it weren't nailed down, they would steal it. And I've thought many times, why do they behave that way? Well, we know why. We know why people surrounding us at the baseball game drink themselves into oblivion before the seventh inning. We know why they talk loud and coarsely and crudely and foolishly. You say, well, it's because they've had too much to drink. No, it's because they are lost. They're lost. That's what Paul says. And I know that because our fourth one is a practical reminder. He says this, for this you know with certainty. He says, I shouldn't even have to say this because it is beyond debate. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of God. Don't miss the point. If your habitual walk, your everyday pattern of life is known for immorality and greed and drunkenness and filthy speech, don't kid yourself that you're a Christian. You're not. And I'm convinced that our evangelical churches are full of lost people. People that six days a week live like the devil and clean themselves up a little bit and come to church on Sunday and put on a happy face. And saying, Pastor, that's pretty harsh. I know it. But it's true. You say, well, I, I filled out a card in Bible school when I was eight. I walked the aisle. They gave me the right hand of fellowship. Surely I'm saved. Not if you live like this, according to the Apostle Paul. Listen to what he says. Know this for certain, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of God. Now he's not saying, if you occasionally make a mistake or you sin, that you lose your salvation or you never were saved. He's talking about 
that clean break of sin that must happen when someone is born again. That's why I think Jesus used the terminology that he did there in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus. He doesn't say you've got to clean yourself up a little bit. You've got to reform in a few areas. You've got to brush off the rough edges and polish yourself up a little bit. He says, Nicodemus, you must be what? Born again. You've got to become a new person. Fundamentally, totally changed. In the Old Testament, he talks about radical heart surgery, where God removes that heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. If that never happened to you, you don't have any part of the kingdom of heaven. What that tells us is that you're holding on to something within yourself. You think there's some reason that God must be attracted to you. You're, you're thinking, I've got something in my possession that God needs. No. The only way to be saved is to come to God on his terms. I often say it with outturned hands and empty pockets. You don't have any wiggle room. You don't have any leverage to negotiate. You are a pauper. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed is a spiritual pauper. That's the person that's going to see God. What about you, Christian? Are you walking with the Lord? Is the trajectory of your life imitating God? Are you growing in holiness as you study the word on a regular basis, as you spend time with him in prayer, as you surround yourself with a fellowship with other believers? As you practice the disciplines of our faith, are you making progress in sanctification? If not, you may have a bigger issue. It may be that you've never been saved. That's why the Bible says we must examine ourselves to make sure that we are in the way. And what you need is not another class. What you need is not another Bible study. What you need is to be broken and laid out and poured out before the Lord. Call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Now, Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word. And we are grateful for its reminder that uh, we are to walk in love. Because we have been forgiven much, we must forgive others. And, and so, Lord, that love motivates us in every relationship of life, from our wife and husband to our children, to our employees, to our bosses, to... Uh, the church, Father, all of those relationships must be uh, known for their love. And so, Father, we pray that you'd help us uh, to manifest that in all of our relationships. Father, I thank you for many people in this church that are such an encouragement to me as I see them making progress in sanctification. But, Father, we must uh, confess 16 million people in this country claim to be Southern Baptist and probably less than 5 million of them will go to church today have even enough interest together in God's house with God's people. And, and so, Father, we, uh, we must take these verses very seriously, that it's very possible to wear nice clothes and put on a smile and go to church regularly and say the Christian things but never have been transformed by the power of the blood of Jesus. And so, Father, if I, I would pray if there's even one in this room who does not know you in the free pardon of sin, that today would be the day that they would confess their sins. They would repent and make a clean break from their old life and begin walking hard and close after Jesus. Lord, I pray you do this for your own namesake, for the glory of Jesus, we pray. Amen. 
Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.